Welcome to On the Ballot with Ballotpedia, where we take a closer look at the top political stories of the day. Ballotpedia connects people to politics by providing neutral, nonpartisan, and reliable information on our government, how it works, and where it's headed. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for being with us. Today, I'm joined by analyst Aaron Covey, who covers the House of Representatives for the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter, to take a look at the trends, races, and redistricting highlights that could determine the Chamber's balance of power in November. Aaron, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me, Victoria. To start, I guess all of our listeners are probably interested in how you ended up at the Cook Political Report. Yeah, so I have only been here about three weeks now, I believe. I started at the beginning of this year. Um, Before then, I was working at Inside Elections with Nathan Gonzalez, who I believe y'all had recently on your show. He's great. I was there for a little over a year. And before that, I was covering house races at National Journal for a couple of years. So kind of gone back and forth in this pretty small world of election analysis for a little bit, but I am now solely focused on house races once again. So awesome. only a few of them I have to pay attention to. It's not big at all. I mean, there's so many. How, how do you narrow in on the few that you specifically cover? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's you start with the competitive races, of course. But on top of that, we also do cover all of the open races, because even if they're in, you know, pretty safe blue or safe red seats, it doesn't matter because it's going to determine what kind of Democrat or Republican is going to be elected to Congress in those seats. So it's quite a few. But yeah, yeah, I mean, anywhere from like 60 to 80 ballpark races that I'm trying to follow along at any given moment that changes like throughout the cycle. But um, it is... It is a lot, but I will say um, Ballotpedia is a huge, huge help when I'm writing about these races. And in fact, I was wondering, I was curious if there is like a way to track like what my like internet history wrapped is for the year. I'm sure Ballotpedia would be in the top five because I spend so much time just like going through the different districts and candidates. Well, we, we love to hear it. We'll be sure to share that with our elections team. They'll be really happy to hear that. Let's jump into the race ratings. So Cook Political Report released the race readings a few weeks back. For those who aren't as familiar, there's a few different buckets that races can fall into, either solid, likely, or leaning for the Republican or Democratic candidates, or there are toss-up races, which are considered, like you said, the most competitive. So Cook has 23 races in the toss-up category this year. What makes a race a toss-up? So it's quite a few factors, and unlike places like 538 that are um, using algorithms to kind of determine the competitiveness of districts, we are using a combination of data and um, just talking to folks who work on the races, folks who work on the campaign committees and the PACs that are spending money in these races. So it's, you know, it's quantitative and qualitative at the same time. But when we're looking at a house race um, specifically, by far the most um, important factor is the partisanship of the district itself and how it previously voted in the last couple of election cycles. So at Cook, we actually have our PVI, our Partisan Voter Index, um, which was developed back in the 90s. And it's kind of the gold standard for determining the competitiveness of a House district. And it basically calculates the presidential election result from the previous two cycles to determine um, what the lean of a district is. So that is um, one of the most important factors, if not the most important factor when we're trying to figure out how to rate a house race is our PVI. And then we're also obviously looking at the previous, so the 2022 results in this district, the 2020 result. And then also, you know, it's, it's oftentimes helpful to look and see like, okay, how did the governor's race play out in this district last year? How did the Senate race play out in this district last year? 
And all of this data is publicly available. Probably lots of y'all's listeners are familiar with Dave's redistricting app um, where you can like look specifically at districts and kind of walk through the past several election cycles and see um, how the statewide races and national races played out there. So historic data, probably the most important factor. And then aside from that, um, we're obviously paying attention to the candidates themselves, you know, in house races, a lot of times people don't know who their representative is. And so unlike Senate races, and obviously presidential races, oftentimes, it's hard for the candidates themselves to have a huge impact on the race and to overcome the partisanship of a district. Um, But you know, there are cases where certain incumbents have a record of doing that. And so those incumbents even if they're in a district that might not look good for them, if they have, you know, a history of overperforming and they have a known brand in the district, um, that does go a long way with our ratings as well. Um, And then, you know, with the newer candidates, so the challenger candidates um, in the open seat races or the ones who are challenging incumbents, a lot of times we're just looking at fundraising. That is probably one of the most important metrics to see a candidate's strength. And, you know, it varies cycle to cycle, um, kind of how well these candidates do. Like right now, Democratic challengers aren't doing as well on the fundraising front, whereas in previous cycles, like in 2020 and 2018, they were like way overperforming. A lot of the Republican challengers has kind of reversed this cycle. Um, So big picture, like trends kind of shift cycle to cycle, but also individually, it's a good way to look at candidates' strength and their relationship politically that enable them to raise the money that they need to actually fund the campaign um, and get on TV if they need to, or at least start sending out mailers and that sort of thing. Unless you are a candidate that already is like kind of starting out with a really high name ID and you're a known quantity, that is really essential for getting your name out there. And then aside from that, um, looking at where the major outside groups are spending their money is really important, especially the later we get into an election cycle. So at this point, there hasn't been a ton of spending just because primaries are just now heating up. But there are large super PACs that are affiliated with House Republicans and House Democrats that spend in these races. And they're doing their own polling internally, most of which never sees the light of day to determine where they're going to spend their money. And, you know, um, they obviously have an incentive to get that right. And so I'm looking at what kind of spending decisions they're making, where they're pulling money, where they're starting to spend money is a really important factor um, as well. Um, But yeah, and then at at the end of the day, we're also talking to the candidates themselves. I try to do as many candidate interviews as I can and get a sense of how strong they are on the stump. And um, just like as a candidate themselves, because there are, you know, oftentimes candidates who may look really good on paper, and then they turn out to be a bit of a paper tiger, a paper tiger when you actually get to know them and when they're interacting with voters. So yeah, it's quite a bit. But you know, historic election results, probably the most important factor. Well, it's all it's really fascinating just to hear all of the factors that go into it. And like you're saying, the historical being the weightiest of those. Yeah, but also still playing their part in, in that determination. Cook Political Report also has the House overall as a toss-up. Heading into the election right now, Republicans hold the control of the House with a 219-213 majority. Without getting too deep into the weeds of it, how did Cook arrive at the assessment of a toss-up for the House overall? Like you said, the starting point is that Republicans have an incredibly narrow majority right now. Um, and so Democrats only need to flip five seats if they're going to take back control of the House um, in 2024. 
And so with that, I would say right now, it's probably easiest to explain it by like going into some numbers um, and doing a little bit of math. So right now there are 201 House seats that we have in Democratic leaning categories. So that means the House seats that we have rated as solid Democratic or likely Democratic or lean Democratic. And then there are 210 seats on the Republican side that are in Republican leaning categories. That means neither party has a clear advantage in the 218 seats that they're going to need to have a majority in the House at this point, which means it's going to come down to those individual races that we have rated as a toss-up. Now, oftentimes what happens um, in election cycles is that all of the toss-ups will kind of break one way or the other. 2022, for example, when I was at Inside Elections, um, we were actually expecting a lot of the toss-ups to ultimately go the way of Republicans, um, but they ended up leaning a little bit towards Democrats um, for the most part, which was interesting. And that's kind of why Democrats were able to really um, lessen their losses last cycle in the House, even though they obviously did lose a majority. It was not by the kind of margin that a lot of folks were expecting. With those toss-up races right now, um, we have 24 seats in the toss-up category. That is going to evolve quite a bit throughout the cycle, probably. Um, but I think ultimately, unless there are like obviously big, significant changes in the national environment, so that's either you know with the presidential race, if it looks like you know Trump is going to win by a landslide or Biden's going to win by a landslide, obviously assuming that these two are the nominees, which is what we're expecting. If the presidential race ends up being as close as we expect it will be, that should mean that the ho- control of the House is also pretty close as well. But, you know, I mean, who knows what will happen at this point in 2020? We didn't know a pandemic was going to disrupt everything. So it's hard to tell. <laughs> but. Yeah, that's very true. Are there any big picture trends that you've noticed that are shaping um, this year's House elections? Like we saw in 2022 with a Dobbs decision coming down and kind of that swaying a lot of the elections post-Dobbs. Is there anything like that heading into 2024? I mean, again, Dobbs did not come out until May. And so, you know, we don't know what's going to happen at the national level that could have a huge impact on some of these races yet. But I think right now, it's pretty clear that abortion is still going to be a significant issue in a lot of these races and is probably the number one issue that Democrats are running on right now. Um, if not, you know, the larger issue of just kind of the MAGA extremism and they'll, you know, they'll tie like candidates position on abortion to that, but also candidates positions on January 6th, the 2020 election results and their closeness to Trump. That's kind of all been tied together in like kind of a larger message that Democrats went on offense with in 2022 pretty effectively. And a lot of particularly in Senate races where you had Republicans nominate some pretty far right candidates. That was an effective message for them. Um, so there, there's not a lot of changes, I would say, between Democrats' message 2022 versus 2024 right now. And then for Republicans, you know, I think, again, the economy is going to be a huge issue and is one that Republicans do better on than Democrats and continue to do so in 2022. But I think immigration right now um, might be the number one issue on the Republican side. That is what's popping up in a lot of ads right now. Um, and a good test of this, I think, will be the special election for George Santos' seat, which is coming up in like two weeks already, day before Valentine's Day. And you see that on the Republican side, um, their focus is almost entirely on immigration and border security. And then on the Democratic side, it's been interesting because in terms of the anti-Republican ads, the negative ads that Democrats are airing, they're mostly focused on Trump and abortion and that kind of whole 
MAGA um, message. But um, the Democratic candidate in this race, Tom Swazi, has also been talking a ton about immigration and trying to kind of get out in front of it as an issue on offense um, and negate the Republican attacks that Democrats are, you know, weak on the border and that Biden isn't doing anything to um, secure the border. So it'll be interesting to see how salient of an issue that still is um, by the time we get to November. I think it's still going to be a huge issue regardless. But also, you know, if Trump is at the top of the ticket, which we're expecting that could change the narrative around immigration. Um, you know, if he's talking about like mass deportations and that sort of thing, that is something that is going to turn off a lot of voters. Um, and it could kind of even out the playing field on this issue a bit. But we will see. So 2022 was the first election post redistricting and redistricting is still kind of up in the air in a few states, correct? How is that going to play into 2024? Um, I know there were maps used in 2022 that may not be used again this cycle. There were quite a few states, actually, that still had pending redistricting cases post-2022. So that included um, North Carolina, which has a new map. They have actually had a new map. Like They've had four new maps over the past like eight years, which is crazy just because there have been various court challenges to their maps. Um, but North Carolina, yet again, has a new congressional map. And that map is going to have a significant impact on control of the House because they basically, the Republicans in the state legislature basically gerrymandered the map so that um, Republicans would be able to easily flip three Democratic held seats. And um, they could flip as many as, as four seats because they made one seat that was already pretty competitive, even more competitive. And so um, that's going to have a really big impact on control of the House. Um, but then on the Democratic side, they are going to be able to most likely net two seats, um, one in Alabama and one in Louisiana due to new maps in those states where um, the Supreme Court had ruled earlier this year that, or earlier or last year, that Alabama's congressional map was a violation of the Voting Rights Act um, because it only had one out of seven districts that were black majority, despite having a quarter of its population being black. And so they got a new map and then Louisiana just signed their new map into law. And then there's still um, questions about whether New York could get a new congressional map. And that is still pending, and it's unclear what the timeline on that is, but it wouldn't surprise me if they do end up redrawing the map, and that would delay then probably a lot of the New York primaries, or that would delay the New York primaries as well, most likely, depending on how long it takes to do that. Um, but the, the New York's highest court has ruled that um, they can go through the process of redrawing another new congressional map. Um, I won't get bogged down in the details for that, though. <laughs> Yeah, it can be quite detailed, uh, too, in the weeds for our listeners, probably. Let's jump into some of these states. You touched on North Carolina. What specific races um, are going to be so consequential in, in that state? Yeah, so um, North Carolina, pretty purple state. They have a competitive governor's race next year or this year. And at the congressional level, though, they only really have one competitive district that Will, um, that could switch between Republican and Democratic control. Like I said earlier, there are three other seats that used to be um, somewhat competitive or pretty competitive that are now super red. And so those aren't going to be competitive in the general election. However, there are uh, five open 
seats now that are in Republican territory. And so there's going to be five really competitive Republican primaries coming up in March um, that will probably determine who is elected to those districts as well. So not as much consequential for control of the House overall, but it is consequential if you're looking at the what types of members Republicans are going to have in their conference next year. So yeah, North Carolina is going to the polls on Super Tuesday along with California. So looking at California, um, they're one of the few states with top two primaries, which means that the top two vote getters advance to the general election, regardless of party affiliation. Is that affecting your outlook on California's competitiveness? California um, is quite hard to keep track of this cycle because there are quite a few competitive races. There's also quite a few open seats that are not competitive at the general election level, but will be competitive primaries. Um, And like you said, because of the top two system, there's a couple of these districts where it's likely that you could have potentially two members of the same party facing off against each other into the general election. But in California, there are eight Republican-held seats that either are competitive at the general election level or at the primary level, and then eight Democratic-held seats that are competitive or open. And so, yeah, 16 races that I'm watching across the state. In terms of the most important ones to follow, there are four that we currently have in our toss-up category, um, and that includes some members that... um, I'm sure some of y'all's listeners are familiar with. So that is David Valadeo in California's 22nd district, Mike Garcia in California's 27th district, and then John Duarte in California's 13th district, and then California's 41st district, Ken Calvert. So these are all Republican members. They are all pretty vulnerable going into 2024. But there's quite a few other seats that are still going to be pretty competitive. Like you have Katie Porter's seat, in California's 47th district. So Katie Porter, um, one of Democrats' top fundraisers in the House, she's running for the Senate, which is another super competitive race. I won't even get into that. But her seat's going to be open and Republicans have a good chance of flipping that seat this year as well. So a lot of races to watch in California. Um, We have not written our in-depth California primary preview yet, but it will be coming in the next couple of weeks. So watch out for that. That's a nice little plug. Yeah. Um, Texas is also going to the polls on March 5th, Super Tuesday. And I know there are some interesting things happening um, in congressional seats around the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex, as well as uh, down south near the border. So what are the biggest highlights here in Texas? Previously, Texas has had quite a few competitive districts before the latest round of redistricting. There were quite a few in the suburbs around Houston and Dallas and Austin and San Antonio. Um, But since redistricting, Texas has very few actually competitive districts. And the only ones that are really competitive are all in South Texas, um, which is one place that Republicans made pretty significant gains in 2020 and did decently in 2022 as well. And that was kind of the impetus for a lot of the narrative around, you know, is our Democrats losing ground with Latino voters? I think, you know, it's a complicated answer to that. Um, but South Texas is one of those places where Democrats have very clearly lost a lot of ground with um, Latino voters. And so the most competitive districts to watch there are going to be Texas's 15th district, which is held by Republican Congresswoman Monica De La Cruz, and then Texas's 34th district, which is held by Democratic Congressman Vicente Gonzalez. And those are the only two races I think that will, that could be competitive at the general election level. But even then, we don't have either of these races as toss-ups. Most likely outcome is that both members win re-election. 
And so a lot of the activity is going to be happening next month or in March um, on Super Tuesday. And that will be largely in these open seats that are, like you said, mostly kind of in the DFW area. So you have Colin Allred's seat, which is very blue now. He's running for Senate. And so his seat's open. And that's going to be a really competitive primary to watch. Um, And then you have Kay Granger's seat. Um, She was a longtime member of the House, chair of the Appropriations Committee, really powerful member of Congress. She's also retiring. And there's going to be a competitive Republican primary to replace her. And then probably like the messiest Republican primary in Texas right now is in Texas's 26th district, which is currently held by Michael Burgess, who is retiring. And that seat is really fun because you have Dinesh D'Souza's son-in-law, who's endorsed by Trump. And then um, you also have Dick Armey, who was the former House Majority Leader back in the 90s. His son, uh, Scott Armey, is also running there, along with a couple of other interesting candidates. So that's going to be a race to watch. Texas does have runoff. So if none of these candidates get 50% of the vote in the primary, it will go to another race at the end of May. And it's actually interesting in Texas because the length of time between the primary and the runoff date is actually longer than the length of time between the filing deadline for the primary and the primary itself. So it's a really short sprint to the primary for these candidates. And then if no one gets to 50, then they'll have a little bit more time until the runoff. But those are going to be the races to watch in Texas. Very interesting. Um, For our listeners, we're recording this episode on January 31st. And so the presidential race is um, moving along, but we're anticipating, like you said, a rematch of 2020. So when it comes to how the presidential race will impact the House, do you think both candidates being decided so early will have any sort of impact on this year's House races and the chamber's overall balance? Do you see like voters paying more attention to lower level races since the presidential nominees may be decided sooner than historically? And let's say presidential candidates start endorsing candidates sooner. Do you think do you see that having a role in the house races in terms of voter attention i don't know it's gonna that it's gonna have much of an impact on the house races themselves obviously the primary is wrapping up pretty quickly at this pace on the republican side and so it's feeling more and more like we're going into general election mode so i think really what's happening is that the general election is going to start a little bit earlier maybe than in like the 2020 cycle when we still didn't know who the Democratic nominee was going to be for a while at this point. So I don't think it's going to affect the amount of attention on House races. At this point, I think the presidential race is going to suck up most of the oxygen as it normally does. But like I said earlier, these president, the presidential results are going to have a huge impact on what happens in control of the Senate and even more so in control of the House, just because, um, again, like a lot of people don't know who their House member is. So they're just voting on party lines. If Trump is doing really well at the top of the ticket and is spurring a lot of high turnout like he did in 2016, that's going to impact control of a lot of House districts, particularly in the more white working class areas um, where Trump tends to spur more turnout. Um, But, you know, on the reverse side, Trump also spurs a lot of turnout on the Democratic side. And so that's going to impact a lot of these House races. Biden's unpopularity is going to be an anchor for a lot of Democratic incumbents in these districts. Um, And I don't see that changing anytime soon. It's been pretty static since 2021. And voters' opinions of Biden and Trump are um, relatively set in at this point. I think obviously the one big kind of like open question hanging over everything is what happens with Trump's various trials. 
And if he does get convicted before the general election, that would that could have a significant impact um, on the race itself. And then as a result on these down ballot races. But it's going to force a lot of Republican members um, who maybe have been avoiding the question of Trump and whether they're going to endorse him or not, because the sooner that the general election comes into focus, the faster that they're going to have to kind of take sides. And so there are currently 17 Republican members in the House who represent districts Biden won in 2020. And most of these members have not said whether they would endorse Trump. They might have said, you know, we will endorse the Republican nominee, but they haven't explicitly endorsed Trump. Only a couple of them have at this point. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how they navigate the Trump question, you know, as, as he's on trial, that is going to be something that they're going to be asked about by voters and by press on the campaign trail. So they're going to have to be able to reckon with that and answer questions about that. And, you know, on the flip side, Democratic incumbents are going to continue to have to reckon with Biden's unpopularity. But I will say in 2022, I think there were a lot of districts where Biden was not pulling well and where we thought he would be more of a drag on these incumbents. And they ended up outperforming what Biden's approval numbers were in the district by quite a bit. So we'll see if that happens again in 2024. I think it'll be a lot more difficult because Biden is actually on the ticket um, as opposed to in 2022. But yeah, I mean, regardless what happens, the presidential race will have a huge impact on whatever happens in in these House races. I think I, I checked right before our call today that um, Trump endorsed like over 200 candidates during the midterms last cycle. Do you, He's only endorsed like 13 candidates this cycle. Do you see him approaching that number in endorsements as he runs for president? Yeah, I'm a little skeptical right now that Trump is going to get involved in a ton of these races, particularly the open seats. Right now, he's really only endorsed candidates in three open seats, um, and that's Arizona's 8th district and Texas's 26th district and North Carolina's 6th district. And the other House um, candidates that he's endorsed are incumbents that you know he, he would be expected to endorse. So it'll, yeah, I think Trump's endorsement, this was a big part of the House narrative in 2020 and then in 2022 as well. I think, you know, now that he is running as a challenger to Biden, he's not the incumbent president. He's going to be a lot more laser focused, I think, on his own presidential campaign. So I think we'll see less of that. Um, But I also, you know, never want to try to predict what Trump does. So maybe he will get involved in more of these races at the last minute. Yeah, that's probably a good call. Well, that's all the questions I have for you. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise. Um, We look forward to having you all back on, hopefully closer to the general election. Yeah, sounds great. Thank you so much for having me on. And for our listeners, you can learn more about our house coverage at the link in our show notes. We'll be back next week with another episode. Make sure you subscribe to On the Ballot wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for listening.